I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. This is Emmy Pettis, and this is my poem, Green Light Go. To be a disco ball dangling in a storefront window in the sun with a cage on it. To be two and three disco balls, downtown McAllen, spangles of sun and water that grew tangerine skins late February, pink bottle brush nostrils, buff-bellied hummingbirds. To be mirrors and hexagonal combs, Mexican honey wasps, larvae, paper, wax. To make geometry without vocabulary. To be live music. Take off your jacket, girl. Wear your tank top. It's 90 degrees. To be a green light go. Downtown corpus. After cars and trucks. Zooming on beach sand before hot tubs. To be an orange sun driving from Gloria Ansaldúa's grave. To be a cactus bloom fuchsia. A puncha. Laguna Atascosa. Laguna Madre. To be a watering hole a mud chimney air vent for crawdad water tunnels. To be a silver lizard run over by tires, a swatch of river on asphalt. To be a bolt loosened from the border wall. To be a peso falling out of the border crossings revolving slot. To be a Coke bottle dove, a Mexican Coca-Cola, a cooing quorum of Loteria cards signing a resolution. To be a goose perched on top of an abandoned sink in a yard, in a town that fords the river. To be the woman stretched on her beloved's grave, returned after decades. To be a kid in juvie. To be her guardian, the judge, the probation officer. To be the letters she writes, the words that matter more than food, almost as much as music and more than makeup. Nearly sun seen through the mandatory skylight, imagined by the control room monitor. To be El Chalan, the last hand-drawn ferry on the river, its ropes pulled by pilots. To be a passenger almost on the other side. I like revel in this poem. I've long loved this poem. And I just think, as a reader of poems, I love it. But then also as a teacher of poems, it's a gift that you can give to aspiring poets and just say, see, all this is, is image after image after image. And that's all the poet needs. Tell me how this poem came to be. Well, I think that I came to this poem um, many years before I actually wrote it. And so a lot of the way that I wrote this book with the river on her face was by walking around the community. And so I live here in the Rio Grande Valley, Texas. I moved here in 2006 before I had lived in El Paso for six years. And so I was moving to a new borderland community. And when I moved here, I thought it was such a beautiful place. And I would walk around. Uh, with my notebook, taking down little notes and images. And it was also a time in my life, a couple of years after I had moved here, um, you know, I was, came here for a new job, but I also chose to live in the borderlands. I like to think of myself living in the borderlands as an act of resistance. I had other choices to live in different places, and I wanted to live here. Um, and so 
I was, you know, had a new job. It was very stressful. I loved it, but it was very stressful. But I would go into the community as on the weekends. And when I had time, this is before kids, when I had time. And I would have my notebook and I would take notes. Um, this was a few years after that. And so I was remembering, wow, remember those days when I used to do all this fun things, going into the community and looking up images? And so I was remembering that and I was thinking, okay, remember when I took a picture of the uh, dangling ball, the disco ball in downtown McAllen? And I don't know why, but I took that picture and I posted it on my blog. And I like to take a lot of pictures while I'm taking notes and it was really... I don't know, a profound moment for me to see this inanimate object in downtown McAllen. Um, and so all of these little images here are things that in some way or another I experienced. And so I also used to really like riding my bike through Laguna Atascosa, which is a wildlife refuge near um, South Padre Island. And I used to like doing that and I would spend a lot of time riding my bike around it and looking at these beautiful images. And, but I wasn't doing that anymore when I wrote this poem. And so I was like, remember to be that. Can I remember that time when I used to do that? And so um, that's how the poem came to be. And of course, you know, it's a list poem. And so that makes it a little bit easier just to sort of list these things. But I think that most of them I felt very deeply. For example, at the time, I wasn't actually going into juvenile detention centers anymore at that point to teach young people, but I used to. So I was thinking back to those times when I would go into juvenile detention centers and sometimes with my students and teach young people, um, although they taught me more than I taught them, um, and just the amazingness of the exchanges of like showing up and sometimes we didn't have a classroom and I would just um, say, here's a writing exercise and they would go with it and they were so willing to write about their lives and share with us. And so I was thinking about that, like how important it was for them to express their feelings and how unashamed they were to do so. And so a lot of this poem is about that. It's like, I'm not ashamed to have fun. I, you know, I can have fun. I can enjoy life. It doesn't all have to be about work, 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 work. And so I was trying to remember that moment. Um, and then El Chalan, the last hand-drawn ferry on the river, is an actual thing here in the Rio Grande Valley you can take this ferry across into Mexico. And I did a couple of times with friends. And it was just an amazing experience. It's, um, you know, you still need to show your passport, um, but cars can go on the ferry and there are people who pull the ropes with their hands. And it was just so easy to get across to the other side and to be in Mexico in like five minutes or less on this beautiful ferry. And you actually can be on the river, which is so rare for us these days to actually be on the river. And so I was trying to remember that, like that freedom of being able to do that in this poem. Well, I think that I came to this poem many years before I actually wrote it. All of these little images here are things that in some way or another I experienced. El Chalan, the last hand-drawn ferry on the river, is an actual thing here in the Rio Grande Valley you can take this ferry across into Mexico. It's, um, you know, you still need to show your passport. Cars can go on the ferry, and there are people who pull the ropes with their hands. And it was just so easy to get across to the other side and to be in Mexico in like five minutes or less on this beautiful ferry. And you actually can be on the river, which is so rare 
for us these days to actually be on the river. And so I was trying to remember that, like that freedom of being able to do that in this poem. And that you end with, to be a passenger almost on the other side, that we are left in the poem in this space between, or on the, you know, the very literal border, not in one place, like having left one and not arrived at the other. I love that gesture. And it seems to me very um, kind of representative of all the poems in this book and that they it exists or it winds up or it starts from that space, the border as, as, a, as a physical place, but also as a, you know, as a metaphorical place. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think at the time that I wrote this poem, I wasn't going across as much anymore. And um, that's for many different reasons. Um, of course, there was more violence that started happening on the other side, but I also, um, I think that I either wrote this right before I had my first child or after, but I haven't gone as much because, you know, life is different with children. And um, I really miss it. I miss being able to go across and to Reynosa and to have dinner. Or when I lived in El Paso, like just going across very casually to go have dinner. And so I think that's why the passenger is almost there but not quite but the idea of almost going or being in in route too and so um, it's like a poem about desire in a way as well but also of loss because I, I really miss living so close to to Mexico and not always being able to easily go across anymore because my life has changed and in some ways it has changed Although last summer I did go to Mexico City, it was a wonderful time, I took my family, I loved it, it was amazing. I'm starting to go back to Reynosa more now and I just love it and I want to be able to take advantage of, of living so close to the border. I love what you said earlier about how you consider living on the border an act of resistance and that you have chosen this, that you had choices, you know, in terms of getting jobs elsewhere or leaving or going away and um, making a different home elsewhere. And I'm just really interested in the idea of living on the border as an act of resistance. And then it made me start thinking about writing poetry and your poetry. Do you consider writing... Um, poetry an act of resistance or do you consider it um do you consider yourself a political poet i do i mean i do consider writing poetry as an act of resistance i think that ever since i was maybe um in seventh grade i would always write poems because i had no other outlet and so um in that way it was an act of resistance maybe only to myself at the time but now, I mean, I think that every time I sit down to write a poem, it's I'm trying to understand what I'm feeling. And so it really helps me. And so that way, it's an act of resistance against everyday life because I'm not just going to go to bed. I'm going to make sure that I understand what's going on in my head and in my body. And um, But it's also an act of resistance, as you said, in terms of politics. While this poem is not perhaps an overtly political poem, I have others in the collection and others I've written that um, perhaps could be considered overtly political poems because in this poem you mentioned how I uh, talk about the border wall and in this poem I just say to be a bolt loosened from the border wall but in other poems as you might know 
I talk more, more overtly about watching the border wall being built in this community where I live. Um, because when I first moved here in 2006, there were no fences and no walls. And I always call fences walls because those fences are very, they don't, they're not like the fences I used to climb when I was a kid. And so um, the 2006 was when George W. Bush signed the Secure Fence Act. And so when I first moved here, I mean, I loved the land and I went to go visit it and um, near the river and it's so amazing. It still is today, but there are a lot of walls that have been built um, after the George W. Bush administration and that continued into the Obama administration. And so most of this book was written before um, this latest president, whose name I don't like to say out loud, um, came and started acting like, oh, we need to build all these walls. And um, well, there are walls here already and more are coming as a result of this administration and the last spending bill. So I continue to write about it. It's something that is important to me. Um, you mentioned that, um, you know, the that I said living on the border is an act of resistance. Well, it is for me because I grew up in Southern California in a community, a very Latino community, Santana, California. Um, however, you know, it's still California. And I, the, the mantra was, you know, in the 70s and the 80s is, you know, social mobility, become middle class, um, become, you know, have more money. Um, become a more comfortable life than your parents um, had. And for me, it was really important for me in the year 2000, in the new millennium, to move to El Paso, um, to live in the neighborhood that my mother grew up in, Misleta, which is now part of El Paso, but which has been there for hundreds of years um, before when the land used to be part of Mexico. And I lived in the same neighborhood in an adobe, community where there are a lot of adobe houses. My grandfather used to build those kinds of houses and it was just two miles from the river. And I thought I was gonna live and die in that, in that community. I, was, I loved it so much and it was so important to me. Um, you know, my family was like, why do you live there? My mom would make jokes, oh, I'm allergic to El Paso and because she really does get allergies when she's there, but really, I mean, she grew up very poor there. And um, it was just really important for me to know, um, you know, my roots and, and some of them. And um, I don't know, it, I really came into myself as a writer there. I'd lived in New York, I'd lived in New Mexico, I lived in California, I lived in LA, I lived in New York City, but I wanted to live in El Paso and I wanted to die there. Of course, when I needed a better job, I was so fortunate that I was able to move here to the Rio Grande Valley. It's very far away, it's like a 12 hour drive if you're driving along the river. But um, it was really amazing for me to stay in the borderlands and not have to leave. It's really been important to me, and I'm really grateful to live here and to raise my, my children in this community, despite what the national media says. I mean, it's such a safe place. Um, I love living here. I love living in McAllen. It's really beautiful. So except for these walls that are coming up and, um, you know, the terror that goes on, um, against immigrant communities here, especially now in this administration. It's, it's horrifying. And so, um, you know, I take my kids to rallies and they are learning how to chant. So all of that is important to me as a human being, but it also appears in my writing, but it's not the extent of my writing. And so sometimes I'll look at book reviews and I'm super grateful for any book review that anybody writes in my work. But sometimes I think that people do not see that I'm also writing about lots of different things as well. 
And, you know, I'm often asked to be on panels about, um, you know, the border or about home, which I love to do. But at the same time, I'm, I'm rarely asked about my aesthetics or, you know, how I write. And so, and that's fine. I think that will come later on in life. But so I appreciate that when you're talking about my poem, you were kind of breaking it down and, and talking about the imagery and everything. Because, you know, aesthetics are important to me as well. It's, it's all very complicated. It's not just one thing, but it's a complexity of things. So I appreciate that you um, acknowledge that in my work. I think it's one of the things that makes it's your work so successful as political poetry i you know i i use that word and i feel like i always feel like there's a better word um you know poetry of social engagement or whatever as if there is any other poetry <laughs> really you know um but i mean that's what i uh ad admire so much uh about it i wouldn't you know if i was if i was handing this book to someone which i would if you hadn't inscribed it so beautifully to me and no one asked me for it because i'm not giving it or borrowing or lending it to anyone but um you know if I was to hand your book to someone, I wouldn't say, oh, this is, she's a great political writer or she's a border writer or anything. I would just say, these are great poems. They're great. And mm -hmm. I really admired um, and I encourage people who are listening to go and find some video or some audio of, of Emmy reading her poetry because it it is it seems to me poetry that is alive on the page and then transforms in your voice like I just was blown oh, away by you. your reading and you know I think sometimes it's not intuitive as a when you're reading something on the page like it gets into y your own rhythm as a reader right. and just to hear what you who crafted the poem intended for it to sound like in the room was just really fabulous I love that about it oh, thank you I thank was, you so much thinking because I think that I think that a lot of people I mean one of the things that I admire a lot is that you, I mean you you're a fabulous poet and then you also do approach these um, political political uh, uh, to topics so it, it seems like so intuitively and so in inherently and I think that a lot of writers I would say probably myself included it's I think sometimes really hard for people to kind of like approach the political when they're writing, like they're they're worried that they're going to kind of come off sounding didactic or preachy or, you know, um, cliche, right? Because some right. political views are very sort of like, you know, they're, they are, you know, Im immovable in some ways or, you know, so I wonder right. if like someone came to you and just said, you know, I'm a I'm a poet and I want to approach the political. How do you do it? I mean, what would you, what advice almost would you give to someone who is like, you know, you're someone who is a great poet who also writes these, these uh, political poems. How, how would you advise someone to do that themselves? I would say, you know, to approach it as, um, you know, writing works of witness, unless they are of course writing about their own lives. Um, and to get out into the community and to hear what people are saying in their community about these topics. And if they're not in a community where people care about the things that they care about, 
we're so lucky now to have like so many YouTube videos, you know, Facebook Live. Find the, those people that sort of feed your political views and, and sort of challenge them, but not in the sense of like Fox News challenging them. <laughs> Although that can be helpful too to respond to because you know that there's just a lot of factual misinformation. Um, so I would say, you know, listen to the people who are most affected by these topics. Listen to them very carefully and, um, you know, go out and, and if you can, I know not everybody's able to, you know, a lot of people don't have time or it's just like an ableist thing to be able to go to marches. But I think being in the situation where I can go to these marches and to participate and to show that, yes, I'm, I also am against these, these topics. I'm in solidarity with, um, with DACA recipients. I'm in solidarity with undocumented residents of this community. And I, I want to hear what they have to say. And so sometimes it's important for me to step back and to, to just listen. And, um, you know, it's really hard to enter the conversation as somebody who is, you know, I, I grew up here in, in the United States. And, I, you know, my parents were born in the United States. Um, three of my grandparents were immigrants. One of them was Tejano, who grew up two miles from the border. And so sometimes people are surprised that I write about these things because in some ways I'm somewhat far removed from them, but I'm not because I live in this community. And whether or not I live in this community, there are immigrants all around us. And, um, and uh, you know, the wall affects me because my children are growing up here. And even before they grew up here, when I wrote with the river on our face, most of it was written before I had children. And it was just awful to see that happen to these beautiful places and to these communities. And so I just think that getting, um, getting yourself out there as much as you can, and if you can't get out there, go online and, and, and listen to what people are saying and, and see what you can contribute to the conversation. And, um, and that doesn't mean that you don't have to insert the personal, because I think in some of my poems, um, in the, with the river on her face, I do try to insert the personal. When I was watching the wall being built, in Hidalgo, Texas, which is just like eight or ten miles away from where I live, you know, I, I watched it being built and I took students with me and I, I was devastated to watch it. And so being there as a witness firsthand and, and expressing how I felt about it as an individual. And at the end of a long poem that I wrote in the book, I, I end it with, and when I wake up in the morning feeling love, and when I wake up in the morning feeling love, and it continues in that way, and it's just so true, is that all this was happening, but yet I would wake up in the morning feeling this immense love, and I couldn't quite understand why. I was just, love this place. I love my history. I love my people. I love the community. I love humanity. It's not about just this place. There are border walls built all over the world that are, are wrong. And, um, you know, so I just wanted to remember and I want to give advice to people to remember why you're doing it. It's, it's mostly because of love. And if we let like anger overtake our poems, and I've written many drafts that are just rants, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, rants have their place. And sometimes, uh, uh, you know, you can pull it off. But I think it's also important to write the rants, let them rest, go back. And remember why you wrote it. You wrote it. Anger is so important in writing a poem, and there's a lot of passion in the anger. But at the same time, why are we so angry? It's because 
we love something, you know? And, and so to try to put that in there and to try to, to say how we are sort of infallible human beings as well. And so in some of my poems, I'm kind of self-deprecating on purpose. Like, yeah, I go to the river and I sit at the river club and I drink beer like with the winter Texans and, you know, I'm like a visitor here. And so I, I try to sort of um, poke fun at myself in the poems because I didn't grow up here. And so there are a lot of people who have grown up here and they might have a different experience. And so I just try whenever I can to, um, to kind of, even though I don't see the poems as completely 100% factual, I mean, I give myself fictional um, powers in the poems. And so I don't think that all the poems are autobiographical or else I would feel very limited. I do try to um, say whenever I can that, yeah, I have roots on the border, but I didn't grow up here. And so in some ways I have to be respectful of the community that has, um, you know, has people who have been born and raised here or, you know, came here as children and grew up here, went to high school here. There's something really important about people um, coming of age in a community. And so um, I try to, to do that as much as I can. And I hope to continue to figure out how to negotiate that because it's really hard. I have some poems that I've written that I'm like, ugh. I don't know if I want to put that in my book. I, some people have said they like them in readings, but I just don't feel quite right about it. Do I, ha am I, do I have permission to, to write that poem? And so I think that having those questions are important because then we can go back into the poem and figure out what it is that is bothering us about the way that we wrote it, or do we just need to add something in there to clarify um, the speaker's position in life. You know, I have many privileges. I, you know, I didn't always, but now I do. I mean, I'm, I'm a tenured professor. I have to acknowledge that in my work. Even though I like to say, oh, I just do that for my job and I'm a poet, but, you know, I got to do that to pay the bills. The reality is, is that, you know, that's what I am. And so I think it's important for us to, um, to privilege the community's voices as much as possible. And I think as a teacher here, I try to do that. I put, a, I put on a lot of events and I try to privilege as many voices that are from this community as possible. And I, I thank them because um, I, I don't want to appropriate their, their life experiences. Um, and so I try to contextualize in my work. And I think so often you do that by way of, again, the specific, you know? Like I think that one of the things in my experience of your work that make them, it's the same thing that makes a successful poem for me. Like there's not, it's not removed, you know? It's not a poem that is trying to tell an idea. It's a poem that's trying to um, allow its reader to have an experience, you know, with the poem and draw their own conclusions you know, and I think those are the most successful. Um, I, well, I mean, you know, again, like I don't know necessarily that there is anything, there, there is any other kind of poem that isn't a political poem, right? Because the political is, is all about our personal experience as well, right? So um, I, I just, uh, I really admire that uh, as aspect of your poetry. I think Rebecca has one question for you. She's going to jump in here, so you're going to hear her voice. Great. Thank you. Hey, Emmy. So, hi. Hi, I just have one really quick question. I mean, your poems, 
mention a lot, like bring up this sense of connectedness to the earth. And in a lot of other shows I've done, I do a show on like food and social justice and that. And, um, and one of the things that a lot of people bring up is that this, the disconnectedness from the earth in so many ways is part of this like colonial project and capital project to disconnect us from our source of healing and nourishment. And I wonder if you can speak to the relevance or the position of the earth and the river and, and being connected to that in your work at all. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, my parents were really wonderful about taking us to beautiful places. I feel really fortunate about that. Um, and I didn't always appreciate it, but they were planting seeds. And so I think in my adult life, I've always found a lot of respite in, in visiting beautiful places. And sometimes people sort of paint the Texas borderlands um, and especially El Paso. I mean, I live in McAllen now, but in El Paso, the desert as like this stark place that is, you know, ugly. And I put ugly in quotation marks. And it's just simply not true. And so um, for me, um, in the past maybe 20 years, being, um, you know, I lived in New Mexico, I lived in El Paso, and now I live in the Rio Grande Valley. And it's just such a beautiful, all of the places are different and so beautiful. And um, sometimes when you live in a place where there is not a lot of foliage and then you see this amazing flower, you see this amazing, um, you know, I'll say horny toad because I forget what they're really called. That's kind of like their nickname. It, it's beautiful and amazing. And in my book, um, I don't know if I should say this on the air, so I'll just change the word. I, I saw a tortoise at Laguna Atascosa. And so in one of my poems, um, I said, so effing ancient. And these places where I live now, um, the monte or the brushlands, about 95% have been uh, removed in the past, in like in the 20th century and up to today. I mean, it's amazing to think that 95% have been removed of the mesquite trees and all these beautiful uh, lands um, for various reasons. And people came from the north to, um, you know, they called it the Magic Valley of Texas. And um, they planted a lot of orange groves and things like that. And um, a lot of this land has been removed. And even now here where I live, a lot of new um, housing tracks, they just kind of clear the land and put a bunch of houses together. And they don't really like build around these beautiful trees and this beautiful uh, life. And so, um, and I think that's a real travesty to have lost so much because it's, it's um, I mean, there are, we have ocelots that live here. We, um, in one of my poems in the book, I mention jaguarundis or jagarundis, I've heard people pronounce them, which are another kind of cat. And, um, you know, in the poem it says, it could be the jaguarundis blood on my face. And really what I, I'm saying is that, how did I contribute to their loss? You know, did I, did I eat it or did I, what did I do to, to participate in um, their loss? We don't see them anymore around here. There are a couple of ocelots that still live in some of the protected areas. But again, I mean, the, the wall, the border wall to me, um, you know, is very complicated. And I don't like to only take the environmental issue because 
it um, reduces the human issue. It's all integrated, and I try to look at it in an intersectional way. And so it's human, yes, but it's also the environment is devastated by these, these structures that prevent the animals from crossing. And so, um, yeah, the land is something that is here for us to, to help us heal when we have... I mean, people for centuries have needed to find the herbs that they need. They've needed to find things that help to heal them naturally. And just being away from all the cars and being away from all the noise really has helped me as a human being to, to be mentally healthy in this life. And I try to teach my children about these beautiful things that are in our community that are, are only 5% are left. And so we really treasure them. And so when... The Trump administration wanted to build a wall through the Santana Wildlife Refuge here. You know, there was a big fight against that. And thank God that the Wildlife Refuge was spared. But there are other ones, like the National Butterfly Center, that the wall is, is likely going to the National Butterfly Center here. It's likely going to Benson State Park. And not only those places, but a lot, I mean, that land by the river, even if the wall is not right on the river, but maybe a few miles inland, is really precious. I mean, it's really amazing. And it's just devastating that the administration doesn't care, literally, about um, this beautiful um, land. And it, it's just really heartbreaking. And it's really devastating. And when, that's part of when I, when I wrote this book. I'm, you know, this was before this new administration. And I wanted to, to sort of document how much I love it, because it's so beautiful. And, it, and I didn't know all the names of the birds, but you know, I wanted to look them up, and I wanted to know where I was living, and, and why is it so beautiful, and why does it heal me? Because it did. It did. It helped me a lot. And it's not just about me. It's about, um, it's about everybody who lives here. We should, our, my children and everyone who lives here should be able to touch the water in the river. You know, and, and we shouldn't have to just go to one place to be able to do that. We should be able to touch it because our ancestors did. And if, if they take that away from us, that is just literally so cruel. That is so cruel to, to take. I mean, we drink the water. I drink it. I have a filter here. <laughs> so I drink it filtered. But, um, you know, I take a shower in it every day. But I want to go to it and I want to enjoy it. So anyway. I get me started. No, I hear you. Oh, well, I mean, you know that I'm from, I'm from um, <laughs> southern New Mexico, so I'm right there with you. And then I go the step farther than thinking about, like, the way that, um, you know, climate change is affecting the river as, a, you know, the ge geological formation that is the river, aside from it being made into a border it's also like you know climate change especially in southern new mexico there's all the you know with all the droughts and people are not able to draw as much water from the river to irrigate their crops so they're going into the aquifer and you know that is not an everlasting source of water you know just that that too is is another way that like what are we doing to change that what is our government doing to change that what are we as a people willing to do to to change that so that these these things can continue that are that like life is sustainable at the border in the desert for longer than the next however Absolutely. many you know 100 years or something we were short-sighted yeah, i mean last november 
I visited El Paso last November, and so I went um, to nearby, like Sunland Park and Santa mm -hmm. Teresa, uh -huh. right there. And um, I was in the river, and it was completely dry. Yeah. And I was walking in the riverbed. Yeah. And so I completely understand what you're talking about. And it it's has always been like that in the winter, that it's like lower, you know? But I have, too, gone right. and, and, you know, stood in the dry river, and it's like physically painful for me to see the river like that um you know, know. just dried like that know. you know nothing where it there's really like is. you know clearly it been really like is. it's been dry for so long there's like in southern new mexico it'll be like you know there'll be like tire marks from where some yahoo went on its truck and drove through the river <laughs> Gosh. Oh my <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, okay, so can I ask, I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'm going to ask you, sure. to, did you did you have a poem to, to read as well, like from someone else? Did you do that? Yes. Okay, great. I, I did, and, and, and when you had suggested this, I had wanted to read um, from Alphabet from, by Inga Christensen, just because in translation, she's a Danish poet. But I don't have the book because it's on campus in my office and I can't find it. And so I pick something else. So um, that yeah. sounds great. OK, so but before I ask you about that, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to poetry? Sure. Um, you know, I always liked writing. And so I think in fifth grade, a teacher gave me a little creative writing award. I wasn't trying to be a poet. I think it was mostly for my little short stories. And then when I was like in middle school, I, you know, I didn't know how to write poetry. I think they gave us limerick assignments or something like that. And I just liked writing in general. And then when I was a freshman in high school, our teacher had wanted us to do this um, assignment for a contest. And it was an essay contest on Martin Luther King Jr. And I kind of rebelled against the assignment. And I wrote this rhyming poem because I didn't know how to write poetry. I just, or contemporary poetry at least, I just would like to listen to a lot of rap music. My brother had a lot of albums at home that I liked listening to. And so I wrote this poem and it won an award and Martin Luther King Jr.'s son gave me an award and there were other winners in the county. And um, I still didn't think that I was a poet. I was like 14 years old, I didn't know. And I was sad that I had to miss my basketball game that night, I was an athlete. And so, um, but it, when I went to college, um, the only reason why I was an English major is because I had one teacher say, you should be an English major in college. And I said, okay, well, she's the only person who said anything about an, a major. I didn't really know what to do. And so I didn't even know that when I went um, to my undergraduate program that they had creative writing classes. And it wasn't until I was there for two years that I realized I could take an undergraduate creative writing class. And so I did take intro to poetry with Molly Bendel and I just loved it and I loved it so much and I started doing better in all of my classes and suddenly I, um, I had a purpose and I took as many creative writing classes as I could and so I don't think I, I mean I think I would have always been a writer but in my notebooks but I don't think I would have if I didn't have that opportunity and that privilege to take those creative writing classes I don't think I would have become a poet. Um, a published poet, at least. I love asking people that question. Like, I feel like I have the <laughs> privilege of, like, asking all of these amazing contemporary poets this question. And one of the things that Rebecca and I were, were just, like, commenting on is that it really, it never ceases to amaze us how... Um, how minor, the little swerve 
can be that like sends someone toward poetry and then it's like oh that's there there you are there you're your home you know like the idea that your all your exactly. grades started getting better after you found this exactly. this thing it's like an after school special <laughs> like <laughs> I was able to rise <laughs> like you know my gpa went through the roof <laughs> but you know and i i, I mean i don't like i like to think too that you know Eventually, if we, if you're meant to be a poet, you sort of eventually will find your way there one way or another. I mean, there are people who overcome great odds to find their path to poetry. You know, I'm thinking of uh, the poet Jimmy Santiago Baca, who taught himself to read yeah. in prison Jeez. and then like put together a manuscript of poems. And uh, uh, is it Denise Levertov? Is it Denise? Levertov? Right. Yeah. She right. Yeah. Didn't she mm -hmm. sort of like somehow get involved and she found a place for them so he you know got out of prison and started publishing books of poetry and now is just like such a celebrated author and Absolutely. you know hero to so many but it's so funny just to I love just hearing like what it was that brought you know <laughs> like oh I signed up for the wrong class and I went to the class and it turned out that it was a poetry class and I loved it or whatever you know it's just really fascinating and so cool to hear that so we're going to just now transition to you uh, reading the poem that you brought, which I'm so excited to hear. And if you wouldn't mind just sort of introducing it and just reading through it, and then I'll just, we'll talk about it for a minute. Okay. So the poem that I selected is Lowering Your Standards for Food Stamps by Cheryl Luna, and it appeared in Poetry Magazine in April 2014. Words fall out of my coat pocket, soak in bleach water. I touch everyone's dirty dollars. Ma's Laos got everything on me. 14 hours on my feet, no breaks, no smokes or lunch, blank-eyed movements, trash bags, coffee burner, fingers numb. I am hourly protestations and false smiles. The clock clicks its slow slowing. Faces blur in a stream of hurried soccer games, sunlight, and church certainty. I have no poem to carry, no material illusions. Cola spilled on my hands, so sticky-fingered, I'm far from poems. I'd write of politicians, refineries, and a border's barbed wire, but I am unlearning America's languages with a mop. In a summer hot red polyester top, I sell lotto tickets. Cars wait for gas, billowing black. Killing time has new meaning. A jackhammer breaks apart a life. The slow globe spirals, and at night, black space has me dizzy. Visionaries off their meds and whacked out, meth heads sing to me. A panicky fear of robbery and humiliation drips with my sweat. Words, some say, are weeping twilight and sunrise. I am drawn to dramas, the couple arguing, the man headbutting head his wife in the parking lot. 911, no metered obod, and nobody but myself to blame. That's such a um, powerful poem, man. I love also, I love about that poem that she's like, I'm far from poems, no obad. But then she, it's, it's in the middle of weaving this amazing poem that she is exactly. saying that, exactly. you know, <laughs> it's so, it's, it's such a great, um, 
it, that's such a great part of the poem that when that thread comes back up because it also <laughs> does like it also does plant the reader farther and farther deeper and deeper into the poem by saying like this isn't this isn't a poem this is this is my life this is what I'm seeing <laughs> this is what I'm experiencing I don't have time for the abstractions or whatever you know I love that about I love that about it and it's just like so imagistically rich Yes, I love it too for that very reason. It's the narrator is, you know, wanting to write a poem the way that we often think of what poetry should be. And instead, it's just a poem about, you know, this narrator's life. And at the end, it's um, very kind of shocking that nobody but myself to blame. And it reminds me of, you know, some really famous poems, that sort of shocking ending. So I, I was thinking of Rilke has a poem, um, the archaic torso of Apollo, that ends, you must change your life. And then um, there's this poem by James Wright where the narrator's just lying in a hammock. And it's like all of these images. And then at the end, um, it ends, I have wasted my life after all of these like beautiful little images that are kind of um, you know, kind of boring little <laughs> images, but this is not like that. She's not writing about like these um, high art sort of things. She's not writing about nature. She's not writing about um, archaic torso of Apollo and then ending on this amazing ending. Um, she's writing about the narrator's life, selling lotto tickets, um, you know, and not having time to write this beautiful poem. But yet, like you say, she does. <laughs> And so when the narrator ends, and nobody but myself to blame, I'm like, wow, that's kind of harsh to the self in the way that those other two poets that I had mentioned are kind of harsh, have this harsh realization. Um, but in the end, this is a beautiful poem. Well, it's so wonderful to talk to you. And like, I hope maybe sometime soon you might um, be able to come to Austin and give a reading here that I think that we would just pack the house. So thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. You can find Emmy Perez's poem, Green Light Go, in her collection, With the River on Our Face, published by the University of Arizona Press. This is Just to Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening.